Amen. Well, if you have your Bible uh, with you, I want to invite you to turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 7. And again, we welcome those of you who are joining us today. We've been looking through uh, the book of Hebrews together for many months, and we are coming to chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. We are going to actually, for the reading, sneak a peek at the last verse of chapter 6. So you might actually, if your Bible's like mine, uh, turn to the one page back and look at the last verse, verse 20, Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to talk about Melchizedek this morning. Who's Melchizedek, boys and girls? And we're going to talk about, more importantly, why Melchizedek is significant because he points you to Jesus. And we're going to always, hopefully, point you, no matter where the sermon begins, no matter what the text, Old Testament, New Testament, hopefully we're going to get you to Jesus Christ in almost every sermon. That's the goal. I preach Christ and him crucified, the Apostle Paul said. So turn with me, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, and then we'll go into chapter 7 and spend more time in verses 1 through 3. Let's pray together, and then we'll read. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We don't deserve to be loved by you. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve, Lord, to be pardoned of our sins and forgiven. We don't deserve to even have food on our plates or houses in which we live. We don't deserve sunshine or anything. We deserve hell. We deserve to be in the place of outer darkness. We deserve the lake of fire. We deserve uh, that place where the worm is never satisfied, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what we have earned. That's what we, that's what we are due. But Lord, we want to thank you that you instead gave the cup of wrath to Jesus, and that Jesus was willing to drink the cup of wrath on the cross so that we could have everlasting life. Let us appreciate Jesus this Thanksgiving season. Help us to see Jesus in this passage that talks about Melchizedek. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, please, and then over into chapter 7 where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham when he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Amen. Now, we want to talk about who Melchizedek is today. I know I've been putting you off for a couple of weeks, but... Um, you know, I'm reading through John Owen's commentary, and he's got a lot of commentary for every verse that he has. And listen, if you've read John Owen, you know that it's not exactly easy commentary. This is not like Matthew Henry. Uh, it's kind of, you know, commentary for the masses. This is uh, tough plowing. But I hope that today uh, you'll be blessed by that labor uh, in Owen, because I think Owen has helped me to really understand uh, about this person, Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek, boys and girls? 
I want you to know something about who this person is in case mom and dad this afternoon ask you anything about the sermon. You can say, mom, dad, it was about Melchizedek who points me to Jesus. Okay, that's what you need to know about the sermon today. We're going to talk about the historical figure of Melchizedek. Now, when I was a seminarian, I was kind of inclined to think that Melchizedek might have been a pre-incarnate figure of Christ. That is, sometimes in the Old Testament, Jesus, before he became a man, while he was the eternal Son of God, he was always the eternal Son of God, before he took on a human body, sometimes in the Old Testament, he would make appearances in the Old Testament. I think, for example, the guy that Joshua bows down to as the captain of the host was the pre-enfigurement of Christ there. That would be one example. Uh, some people think that that might be what's going on with Melchizedek. With Melchizedek, you got this kind of guy who comes out of nowhere in the book of Genesis, and, and Abraham suddenly is paying tithes to him, and some have made the case that that was a picture uh, of, or a prefigurement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not as certain. Um, now, having read through some of these commentaries and given some thought, um, that it is a prefigure of Christ. I think Owen, who believes that Melchizedek was an actual historical figure in the book of Genesis, um, makes a good case uh, that here we, we are dealing with somebody who um, indeed points you to Jesus, but was not Christ himself. Owen thinks it would be a bit strange if, if one who is a type of Christ was Christ himself, uh, and that what we are dealing with here is a person who was known to Abraham historically in that day. So what I want to do here is I want to break this down. First of all, we want to talk about what does the order of Melchizedek mean, first of all. Then secondly, let's look at this guy, Melchizedek, from the first few verses of chapter 7. So first of all, we're going to talk about the order of Melchizedek, which is mentioned in chapter 6, verse 20. And then we're going to bear down into this idea who Melchizedek is and why in the world does the author of Hebrews write about this figure to the first century church? Why would first century Hebraic Christians care about Melchizedek? What's the significance in the application of that? And why do we in the 21st century need to care about the person of Melchizedek as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ? And I hope to make that clear to us as well today. So let's begin by looking at chapter 6, verse 20 here, because you'll remember that the apostle here is got a main point here. He's worried about these Christians here. And in chapter 6, verse 20, he says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, how did we get there? Why is the author of Hebrews talking about Jesus as a high priest who's gone into the inner veil, one like the order of Melchizedek? Well, let's back up just a moment here. Remember, what is the significant point in this section here? The author of Hebrews wants you to understand, he wants the original audience of Hebraic Christians to understand 
that Jesus Christ is supreme and he is far greater than anything that the old covenant could have brought to us. Why is he making this case? Because the author of Hebrews is concerned that many of these Hebraic Christians may be under the stress of persecution, may be under the stress of being alienated from their fellow family members and Jews who didn't go the way of following Jesus Christ. They are tempted to go back and to leave Christ. And they think, maybe we ought to just go back and, and, and go back to the way it was before we knew of Christ. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is, stop, go no further, don't go back. He says, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ has been set before you, and he is far greater than the Levitical priesthood and the types and the shadows of the temple and of circumcision, and of the sacrifice of animals. Don't drift away from Jesus Christ back into the types and the shadows. No, 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 no. Abraham, your father, looked to this day and saw it from a distance, Jesus said. And he what? He rejoiced in it. We are to rejoice in the revelation of Jesus Christ We are to see Jesus in all his loveliness, his holiness, his beauty, his excellency, his merit, his righteousness, his substitutionary sacrifice, his atoning death, his vicarious resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is far, far, far superior and above everything that was foreshadowed of him in the Old Covenant. Don't go back to the training wheels of the tricycle. You have matured to the fullness. Keep pedaling on your bicycle, boys and girls. Don't go backwards. Don't go back to infantilism. But press on to maturity and growth in Jesus Christ. That's what the author is urging us here. Now, What does that have to do with the order of Melchizedek? What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Well, this is what the author, I think, is intending here. He is saying here, if you look at verse 20, when he speaks of Jesus Christ, remember what he just told us last week, that Jesus had entered into the what? The holy place. Not the copy of the earthly temple, not the room gilded with gold dug up from the earth, whereby a high priest of the sons of Aaron would go, and he would go in that room, but he would only go one time a year, and what would he go with? He would go with animal blood, and he'd sprinkle the animal blood on the mercy seat, and he would come out. And what happened to that high priest? Eventually, that high priest would die like any other man. And what the author is saying is, you, when you believe in Jesus Christ, whether you are ethnically a Jew or whether you are ethnically a Gentile, when you believe in Jesus Christ, now you have a high priest who is better than the high priest of Aaron. He is better than a a Levitical high priest. He's better than a Levite. He is of the order of Melchizedek. He is of an entirely different order. 
And therefore, he supplants the Levitical priesthood. You, when you believe in Jesus Christ, your high priest right now is in the inner veil. Did you know that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil that was in the physical temple in the physical Jerusalem was torn in two from top to bottom? Miraculously. It's not a, this was not a little curtain thin as a piece of paper, boys and girls. This was a thick curtain. You might die if it fell on you. It was so heavy. And it was torn when Jesus cried out, it is finished. And, and Christ, after the resurrection and the appearance unto men for 40 days, where does he go? He goes into the Holy of Holies in heaven. He goes into the, not the replica of the temple on earth. He doesn't go into the holy room in Jerusalem. He goes into the holy room. Remember, the temple in Jerusalem is but a mere copy. Moses said when they were making the tabernacle, be careful what you do and how you build this tabernacle, because why? It's a copy of heaven. It's a copy of a reality of glory. But it is only a copy. It's a shadow. It's small. It's insignificant. It is always to give way to the reality, and the reality is that Jesus Christ, our priest, is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. He has brought not animal blood. He didn't bring a blood of a goat with him. He didn't bring the blood of a bull. He didn't bring the blood of some heifer. He said, Father, I bring you myself, one who was slain and now risen, the Lamb of God who was slain. I bring you my own blood, and I present myself to you, Father, as the sacrifice for your people, that whosoever should believe in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the author of Hebrews is saying here, congregation, why in the world would you go back away from that glorious truth to something so typological and shadowy? You have a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? And why is Melchizedek uh, to be viewed as greater than the order of Aaron and, and Levi? Well, let's look at this. First of all, turn with me into the book of Genesis chapter 14. There are two places in your Old Testament that speak of this guy, Melchizedek. One of them is in Genesis 14. The other place is Psalm 110. So in Genesis chapter 14, you know the story. You have the battle of the kings, the slaughter of the kings. They, they, they came and they stole you know, Lot. They took Lot captive and all that he had. And so Abram raises up his army and he goes and he pursues after these kings and he defeats them and he kills them. And then uh, in uh, verse 18, after Abram is coming back from the battle, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him, that is Melchizedek blesses Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram, the God, excuse me, blessed be Abram of God most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him, that is Abram, gave him a tenth of all. So notice here that Abram is coming back, and as he comes back, now John Owen believes that uh, Melchizedek may have lived, he was the king of Salem, and it may have been the Salem that today we would know as Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and that Melchizedek was a real historical figure, and remember now that there were people outside of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who occasionally did believe in God, the living God. You know, we, we, we know Job believed in God, Right? Job's the oldest book in the Bible. We know there's a guy named Jethro who becomes Moses' father-in-law. He was somebody who believed in God, but was yet distinct from Israel, wasn't he? So uh, we do know that there were people who believed in the true and living God. And the thing is, we don't know much about him, but we do know this. He was a priest and he was a king. And he comes and he blesses Abram. The, the, The greater blesses the lesser. And that Abram, here you need to understand this, gives him a tithe, a tenth of the spoil. Now the significance of this as it pertains to the book of Hebrews is this, that in a sense when Abraham gives a tenth of the spoil back to Melchizedek, who else is in a sense giving the tithe to Melchizedek? It's the tribe of Levi. That is the future children and grandchildren that would come forth from Abraham are in Abraham. And if Abraham gives of his tithe to Melchizedek, it means that even the priesthood of the Levites gave to Melchizedek. That is, Melchizedek is superior to the tribe of Levi. And that the order of Melchizedek was the one that blessed the order of the Levites. And that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of the tribe of Levi. And therefore, that Melchizedek points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we should be believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and following that priesthood. There was a time for the Levites, but that time has now been superseded with the coming of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And now God has established a greater priesthood in this new covenant. It is a priesthood of a whole new order. Now the question arises, though, why would God establish a new priesthood according to to Melchizedek? why, why does he do that? Well, I think the reason is this, and this is where I want you to turn to chapter 7 and look with me at the first three verses. And that is this, that the order of Melchizedek, there were things about Melchizedek and his historical person that point us to Jesus in a way that even the Levites did not. Now, yes, you can make the case that the Levitical tribe pointed to Jesus Christ too, Okay but that there were things that were historically unique about Melchizedek that sets him apart in terms of his typology to Jesus. And what are those? Well, first of all, look at verse 1. 
First of all, we see that this priest is also a king. You couldn't say that of the Levites. Look at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Notice here that where the Levites had a strict uh, role in terms of that they could only deal with the things related to the temple and the tabernacle, they were not to be involved in things of reigning and ruling, kingship. Just as the kings were not allowed to enter into the temple and start offering sacrifices themselves. Remember, Saul got into trouble when he tried to do that. Remember Uzziah, boys and girls? You remember when he tried to make offerings in the temple? And what did God do? He, Uzziah broke out in leprosy, didn't he? And the priests had to scurry him out of the temple. Uh, and, and so, But here we've got one who is priest and king. And what I want you to see is that the order of Melchizedek is superior to that of the Levites in this, that we find two offices in Melchizedek. We find him as one who is both priest and who is king. And in that way, he points us more closely to Jesus Christ than even the Levites alone. Because who is Jesus? But he is prophet, priest, and king. You boys and girls, you know, right, from your catechism, you know this, right? Just shake your heads. Yeah, yeah, Pastor. That, that Jesus has three offices. What are the three offices of Christ? The three offices of Christ are prophet, priest, and king. So what we're learning here is that, that Melchizedek points us to two of those offices. If you look at Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So if you want to know what does your New Testament think is important about the Old Testament, Psalm 110 is at the top numerically in terms of references. But listen to what Psalm 110 says about Christ. He says, <coughs> he says, the Lord says to my Lord, this is David now, sit at my right hand. So David is saying that Jehovah says to David's Lord, that means somebody's greater than David, David's acknowledging there's somebody greater than me and Jehovah, Yahweh, is speaking to him. Because you might think, well, David, you're the greatest man who ever lived in your day. And David's saying, oh no, but there's one greater than me who's coming who will be the son of David and he is my Lord and I am but his subject. And Yahweh says to him, sit at my right hand. Now, why does he tell Christ to sit at the right hand? Because he's a king. He's going to reign with God. But notice what else we see. Not only does Christ have a strong scepter in verse 2, and he is to rule in the midst of his enemies, but then he says in verse 4, you, speaking of Christ, are a priest forever, according to what? The order of Melchizedek. So what Psalm 110 is telling us here is it was prophesying that one day this would happen. One day, Christ would come and he would be the fulfillment of Melchizedek who was both king and a priest. Jesus reigns and he rules at the right hand of the Father, but he also makes intercession to the Father for you and me. You know, Charles Spurgeon said that if you could hear Jesus praying for you in the other room, you wouldn't have a worry in the world. That Jesus Christ, who is both king and priest, he is reigning for you, making sure that everything works together for your good, and he is praying for you. And who best exemplifies that in the Old Covenant? Melchizedek. 
king of Salem, king of peace, and the priest of the Most High God. But let's keep going here. Notice what else, as we already mentioned in verse 2. Abraham is the one who tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, Abraham, in a sense, was tithing, and Levi, in, in Abraham, was tithing to Christ. Abraham was tithing, giving of his offerings to Christ, ultimately. And so were the Levites. This means that the Levites themselves were always looking for the order of Melchizedek to supplant them. That even in their priesthood, they were looking to a greater priest in Jesus Christ. And then, verse 2, notice that he is also called the king of righteousness. Melchizedek is called the king of righteousness. And this, of course, again, is found ultimately in who? Well, the Old Testament prophets told us who. Where is your righteousness? Do you remember what the prophets, like Jeremiah, said? The Lord is your righteousness. The Lord is your righteousness. Your righteousness and my righteousness come by way of faith in Jesus Christ. The world thinks righteousness comes by way of our own merits and works. I do good, I give you know, uh, offerings, or I seek to be charitable, and those are, the, those are my merits that I bring before God. But the true Christian says those merits will never atone for my sin. I need a righteousness that is impeccable. I need a righteousness, you need a righteousness that is without any flaws, any sins, any shortcomings, any deficiencies. Where can I find a righteousness like that? I can't find a righteousness like that. If I'm honest with myself, I can't. I can't find even in a single day of my life the kind of righteousness that would withstand the hot light of God's scrutiny. Everything I do has blemishes in it. Never have I done one thing with perfect motivation in my life, ever. I am always tainting my best efforts with my imperfections and sins and shortcomings and failures and poor motives and bad attitudes, mixed attitudes, shall we say. Where am I going to get the righteousness that I need, that I can stand confidently before God? How can you stand before the omnipotent God confidently? You can only stand if you have an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from God himself, a righteousness that is perfect, that is holy, that is blameless, that is undefiled. Where am I going to get that righteousness? I get that righteousness from the king of righteousness. That Jesus Christ gives you that righteousness. Jesus said, are you heavy laden? Are you weary? Are you tired of laboring under the burden of the law? Are you weary of trying to find a righteousness in yourself? Are you trying to uh, labor in an inherent righteousness up to God? You're never, you're never going to do it. And are you sick of it? Are you tired of it? Are you tired of this weary world? Are you tired of the sin and the condemnation, the alienation from God, your God, your maker? Jesus says, this is the answer. You come to me. You believe on me. You believe on Jesus Christ. You come by faith and I'll give you the rest you need. Why? How? Because I have the righteousness to give you. 
I have a perfect life. I am the one from whom the clouds parted and the voice from heaven came down and said, this is my son. I'm well pleased with him. He said it on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said it at Jesus' baptism. This is my son. Believe on him. Listen to him. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No man cometh unto me by his own works, but by faith alone. Because why? Well, because faith admits I don't have any works. If you have real faith, you're saying inherently you have real poverty in terms of righteousness. I need righteousness. Lord, help me. I'm a leper. I'm unclean. I'm like a, a, a woman with a bleeding problem, ceremonially unclean. But if I can just, by faith, touch the edge of your garment, I know that I'll be forgiven and I know I'll have the righteousness that I need to stand before God. The Bible says that every true Christian who believes in Jesus Christ will stand before him holy, blameless, and with what? Great joy. Not with fear, not with a sense of a slave worried that he's going to be struck. He stands as a son, he stands as a daughter in the presence of an infinitely holy God who could, could condemn him to eternal punishment, who is a consuming fire, but you stand because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ has laid down his life and he has taken back up, and whosoever believes in Jesus Christ should not perish. Melchizedek was the king of righteousness, but friends, that was always pointing to Christ, who is the real king of righteousness. Even Melchizedek looked to Christ. Now, Melchizedek not only is a better type of Christ and superior to, than the Levites in the sense that he is the king of righteousness, but also notice here in verse 2, he is then also the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. Now, as I said, some commentators believe that part of that, at least historically, meant that Melchizedek lived in the king of Salem. He, he, as king of Salem, he, he was the king of Jerusalem. But here... The author is showing us here that where do we find peace with God? We find peace with God in the same place that you find the righteousness of God. We find it in Jesus Christ. You know the story of Luther, right? We talk about this usually every October and that Luther is an Augustinian monk in the Roman Catholic Church. And what is he doing? He is trying to obtain the righteousness of God and, the, and he's trying to obtain experientially peace with God as a monk. And yet, the more he goes about doing his monkery work, the, the worse he feels. He has no peace at all. Uh, he's fasting, 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 praying, 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 confessing his sins, confessing his sins, confessing his sins, confessing his sins, doing his things that he's supposed to be doing, and he finds no peace. He, he feels, though he is still under the wrath and judgment and condemnation of God, and he begins to hate God for it. 
It seems as though God is, is demanding something of him that no man can perform. And so he begins to view God as evil and as a tyrant and as awful. It is only through his study of the book of Romans that he begins to understand, though, that the peace comes by way of faith in Jesus. The righteousness is provided by God through Christ as well as the peace. That the good news of the gospel is not, it's, it's not in the imperative. The gospel is not in an imperative. It, it is a story. It is an indicative. It is that this is what God has done to save us. Believe this. Not do this, but believe on Jesus Christ to receive the righteousness that you need and the forgiveness that you need that you might have peace with God. You will not have peace if you are trying to Bring out your own righteousness. If you're trying to keep some thread in your, of righteousness in your pocket to pull out just in case Jesus isn't really enough, I'm going to whip this out before God. It will do you no good. That it, We must put all of our weight on Jesus Christ. That Melchizedek was the king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem. He is the king of peace. Peace, reconciliation comes by way of Jesus Christ. God in Christ was what? Reconciling the world unto himself. That God would offer terms of shalom to those who would repent and believe. I need to keep going though here. Notice there... Then you get to verse 3. Now here's another reason that I think the author of Hebrews says that the order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of the Levites. Then you get to... Now this is... Verse 3 is, by the way, this is why I think a lot of people who maybe think that this figure is a pre-incarnate Christ think that this is maybe the reason uh, for it in verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. So some, you know, would argue, you see, pastor, there it is. He had no beginning, no end of days. Who can say that but Christ? Uh, without father, without mother, that is, he is the eternal son of God from beginning with the father and the spirit. And I, I, can, I can appreciate that. I feel the weight of it. But here's what um, some commentators argue. How do you answer this if Melchizedek is a historical person? without father, without mother, without genealogy. Obviously, Melchizedek, if he be a historical person, had a mom and a dad and had some you know, background that led back to Adam. The point of the author of Hebrews, say the commentators who argue this point, is this, that, that it, is not, it is never introduced to you. Unlike a lot of other figures that you read about in the, Testament where, the Old Testament where you see that they were the son of so-and-so, uh, from this area. Here, the author of Genesis, Moses, never really tells us anything about the background of Melchizedek. He just appears suddenly on the scene, almost out of nowhere. And what the author of Hebrews is arguing here is not that this is therefore uh, the prefigure of Christ himself, but like Christ. He just comes onto the scene. Um, 
having neither the beginning of days nor the end of life. That is, there's just no history here other than this one account. We don't know much about Melchizedek. Uh, we don't know who his parents were. And I think that's a, a, a reasonable argument here. That the, that the author of Hebrews is just pointing out here that he is like the Son of God. Didn't say, notice here he doesn't say that he is the Son of God, but he was made like the Son of God. And in, that, in this sense, he is saying here he was a unique historical figure who comes onto the scene and, and brings this blessing to Abraham. And in that way, the mystery of Melchizedek points us to something of the mystery of Christ and the incarnation, that the eternal Son of God, who in his uh, divine nature has no mother, and in his human nature has no biological father, comes together in his one person. And that he uh, brings this blessing to the people of God here. Now, what do we make of this? Why is this significant uh, for the early church and for us here? Here's the point. We were talking in the context when this came up of what? The need for perseverance, and the need for assurance. The two great themes that we see in chapter 6 and carrying over into chapter 7 is that, the, is that God would have you persevere in your faith and that God would also have you be assured of your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you are struggling to persevere. Some of you are struggling for assurance of your faith. God would have you have both. How do I get both? Where do I find the strength to persevere? And where do I find the grace to grow in my assurance that should I die, I am accepted with God. I do have peace with God. I am reconciled to God. I do have the righteousness that I need to appear before God. How do I obtain to that? You get it by going to Christ. And just as you begin the Christian journey by going to Christ, it never changes you're always going back to Jesus Christ. It's not as though you begin with Christ and then you, on your own effort, try and work out the rest of your Christian life. But the Christian life is always going back to Christ again and again and again and again and again. We are always looking to the Lord Jesus Christ so that as we seek help in persevering when we are tempted to fall away with the world, when we are tempted to give up, because we are weary with well-doing, what do we do? We look to Jesus Christ by faith. We look to Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of his work, and we know that he loves us more than anyone else could ever love us because he was willing to die for us and give up his life and, and substitute himself before the wrath of God for us. And if he has begun this good work in you, he will complete it to the day of redemption. He who has started this work of grace in your life is going to see to it that you are resurrected at the last day, body and soul glorified for him. But you have to persevere by faith in the Son. We persevere and we grow in our assurance by looking to Jesus Christ as well. Some of you who struggle with assurance, why do you struggle with assurance? 
you most likely struggle with assurance for one of two reasons. Number one, you struggle with assurance because you have a high conviction of your own guilt and sin, but you're struggling for a sense of pardon. The other is just that you're worn out and you, you feel this weariness at that, in, that it may be a physical weariness that spiritually also can cause you. And we'll, we'll talk more about this tonight. I'm going to talk about assurance tonight. So I don't want to say too much now. But what do you do? You go by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, just as you did when you were first converted. When you were first brought to Jesus Christ, what did you do? You probably prayed a prayer, didn't you? You prayed a prayer, maybe the sinner's prayer, maybe something like that, where you asked, you said, God, you confess, Lord, I am unholy, I'm unrighteous, I'm a sinner, and I need salvation, and I believe in Jesus Christ, your son. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose for me. And I trust in him. Lord, I, please uh, forgive me of my sins. And, and I thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Just the way you begin the Christian faith is also how you continue. We're always looking to Christ. So if we feel like the devil is coming with accusations against us, oh, you say you're a Christian, but didn't you do this? Didn't you say that? And what do we do? Well, we go to Christ. We say, Lord, Jesus, help me, like Peter walking on the water. Lord, I'm sinking. You know, pull me up. Bring me closer to you. Assure me of your love and your forgiveness and your grace. We go back to Christ time and time uh, again. We believe on him in the scriptures. Uh, and as we're about to do right here, one of the reasons we observe the Lord's table on a weekly basis is we put Christ in front of us time and again. This is what I need for my weariness. This is what I need for my assurance. This is what I need for my perseverance this week. I need the body of Jesus. I need the blood of Jesus Christ. I need the work of Christ on my behalf. I need this means of grace to sustain me, help me, bless me.